Welcome back to the History of Wellness podcast. I'm your host, Krista Scherf, and in about a week, I turn 30. It feels like it's been a long time coming, and people have already started to ask me how I feel about it and about aging in general, and to me, that seems kind of crazy. I mean, it's 30. It's a number. But it's not just a number. Particularly for women or female-identifying people, turning 30 is sort of a hallmark age. I don't know. Women are expected to look young forever in the media and in general. There's some sort of expectation that we have to be afraid of getting older. But aging isn't something I really think about on a regular basis. I mean, maybe I haven't really felt the effects of it yet. I don't know. Nonetheless, I was curious about how people throughout history have approached aging and what the general consensus about it was. So I want to talk about that today. Let's go. So anti-aging and the idea of living a longer life, perhaps to the point of immortality, is an, an ancient concept. Aristotle believed that a person's vitality uh, was burned away over a lifetime until a person was cold and dehydrated, um, similar to Hippocrates, but Hippocrates believed that a person was cold and moist upon death. Not my favorite word. <laughs> However, Aristotle and Hippocrates both believed aging to be a negative thing, while others of the time believed it to be an incurable natural condition. Interestingly, even in the Hebrew Bible, it would seem that there is a certain reverence and admiration for the aging and the elderly, largely due to the high mortality rate of younger generations. The average lifespan, according to remains found to be dated between 1 BCE and 4 AD, was generally around 40 years old or younger. Prior to the Great Flood, for example, in Genesis 6-3, it stated that God set the limit for a person's lifetime to be 120 years, although other psalms and entries refer to a long life being between 70 and 80 years long. Prior to the Flood, since Adam and Eve, it's suggested in the text that some people lived for many hundreds of years, though the written lifespan decreases significantly over time. You can find out more about that in our sources linked in the description. In the text, it's implied that as evil and wrongdoing occur more frequently in the world, i.e. leading up to and then after the flood, the shorter human lives become. Further reverence for the elderly has been shown in other ancient Egyptian writings, such as from the instruction of Papyrus Insinger, which separates life into different periods of time. Now, according to this text, a person's lifespan would be considered about 100 years, but there's really no evidence that any culture at the time achieved that age. It does also reflect more of a privileged life, as more working-class people wouldn't be financially capable of living as leisurely as is written in the text. Check out our sources for more information on the text itself. It is a little bit lengthier, and it would be a lot to read off. But aging concerns continued throughout history. In the 1500s, French surgeon Ambroise Paré divided life into four periods of time, puerility, adolescence, youth, and virility, and then there was old age. There were two parts of old age, 35 to 49 years old, and 50 years and older. But in 1513, 
Spanish adventurer Juan Ponce de Leon took the search for the Fountain of Youth rather literally and set out on a voyage to find it, instead finding Florida. Now, medicine directly relating to or the care of the older population is a relatively recent concept. In the Renaissance period, the idea of living a longer, healthier life came more into popularity, and the belief that diet, exercise, and lifestyle had an effect on a person's aging process, like the idea that people had some semblance of control over their aging, came into the spotlight. In 1550, Luigi Cornaro, an Italian of nobility, published the book The Art of Living Long. The book argued that a longer, healthier life was indeed possible. People didn't have to die in their 60s or 70s, but by doing everything in moderation, people could live so much longer. Moreover, it wasn't that old age was or meant illness or pain for certain, but that it was a stage of life to be revered and coveted. He wrote, I had never known that the world was beautiful until I reached old age. Indeed, old age is the time to be most coveted, as it is then that prudence is best exercised, and the fruits of all of the other virtues are enjoyed with the least opposition. Because by that time, the passions are subdued, and the man gives himself up wholly to reason. He believed that by living until old age, a person could then truly understand why it was worth living longer, that people could further enjoy the fruits of their lifelong labor, share what they've learned over their lives with the community, and that death then, instead of being riddled with illness or disease, could be peaceful rather than painful. Throughout the period of the Enlightenment, many scholars believed that with age, most people could maintain their mental strength and capabilities until death, and manage to continue being productive members of society. But in the 20th century, aging became known more as a disease of physical and mental deterioration. Many scientists have since asserted that proper nutrition and stimulation of cells are the primary ways to achieve longer, happier lives. Charles A. Stevens, a neuroscientist who actually just passed away a few months ago in March 2020 at the age of 87, once said, A mortal life will be achieved by the aid of applied science. In 2002, scientists J. Olshanke, Leonard Hayflick, and Bruce Carnes came out publicly saying that, quote, The hawking of anti-aging therapies has taken a particularly troubling turn of late. Disturbingly large numbers of entrepreneurs are luring gullible and frequently desperate customers of all ages to longevity clinics, claiming a scientific basis for the anti-aging products they recommend and often sell. At the same time, the internet has enabled those who seek lucre from supposed anti-aging products to reach new customers with ease. No currently marketed intervention, none, has yet been proven to slow, stop, or reverse human aging and some can be downright dangerous. In a way, these scientists were trying to debunk the idea that there could be a magic pill or treatment to stop the process of aging, but moreover, this created a, rather started, a public health campaign to raise awareness on the dangers of these therapies or treatments being used to anti-age. For example, while healthy eating and exercise can help a person age gracefully, so to speak, Modern hormonal anti-aging treatments can have negative effects on those specifically with diabetes or elevate women's risk of dementia, cancer, or heart disease. Even more, if a treatment is ineffective, a patient could just be wasting a lot of money on one thing when either another treatment or actual medical care may be more effective. 
A 2006 article in Anthropological Quarterly raises the idea that it's less that aging is considered a disease or ailment now, but more that it's now about health optimization. In other words, do what you can do to ensure you're living your best life. This trend has continued. As of 2018, the anti-aging industry is worth over $50 billion and includes everyone from regular healthcare providers and registered dietitians to chiropractors and psychotherapists. So how have we as humans tried to counteract aging throughout history? I mean, it's been a topic for ever, pretty much, right? The beauty industry has come up with all kinds of anti-aging products and methods, from ineffective and maybe just moisturizing to downright deadly. In ancient Egypt, castor, sesame, and moringa oils were considered as being anti-aging and were applied to help fight wrinkles and any other signs of aging. Honey and milk were used to moisturize the skin, and dead sea salts were used as an exfoliant. Another largely prevalent herb um, in ancient Egypt was fenugreek, which would eventually, through extensive processing, (laughs) would let off an oil that was then applied to the skin. And ancient Greece used many of the same anti-aging treatments, but also included using yogurt and beeswax, and in 150 AD, the Roman physician Galen created the first cold cream in the world, a mixture of olive oil and beeswax. In contrast, there have been some more, let's say, interesting treatments. Also in ancient Roman Greece, crocodile dung was used as an anti-aging treatment. Those looking for a youthful glow would soak in tubs of the dung for hours on end or use it as a face mask. I think I'll pass on that one. (laughs) In the 600s AD, Empress Wu Zetian, the only female ruler of the Tang Dynasty, kept a keen interest in skincare. She was known as being incredibly beautiful, and she would mix together a solution of Chinese motherwort and cold water to wash her face. Fast forwarding to medieval times, the use and application of animal fats came into fashion for anti-aging, and Things such as aloe vera, rosemary, and cucumbers were used to help cleanse your skin. People started using more herbs and plants in their skincare routines at that time, and vinegar was used as a facial toner. The Renaissance period, however, was more chemically experimental, though, with its use of mercury and lead in facial cleansing, something that is definitely not used today in the same capacity. The mercury used actually corroded your skin. But if there is something that has proven the old-fashioned ideal that beauty is, or rather was pain, it is that. In contrast, and still a little odd to those of us in modern times, during the late 1500s, Elizabethan women went a little gaga and covered their faces with raw meat in an attempt to minimize wrinkles. But in the late 1500s and early 1600s, Countess Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary was said to have bathed in the blood of young women presumably her victims. She's been said to have been akin to Vlad the Impaler in that regard, but modern scholars say she was more likely a victim of political betrayal than a serial killer. Slightly more, you know, socially appropriate, maybe, nowadays. French women in the 1700s applied aged wine as a wrinkle treatment, which actually did help a little. But unfortunately, The meat-on-the-face trick continued into the 1800s. Still gross. In the early 1900s, 
After it made its way to the forefront of the scientific community, companies began to use the element radium in all kinds of household and beauty products, most specifically a rejuvenating cream for your face by the company Art, A-R-T-E-S. It's a French company. The company claimed that it assisted with blood circulation and generally toned up the skin. Another popular skincare item with radium in it was the Chemolite Radioactive Beauty Plasma, which was advertised as being volcanic mud from the Carpathian Mountains. The mask claimed to be a miracle product, reducing wrinkles and lines, acne, freckles, sunburn, and tone your facial muscles while brightening your complexion. Unfortunately, the human body takes in radium, thanks thinking it is something of a calcium replacement, but instead of strengthening your bones, it deteriorates them. It's kind of horrifying, so I will leave it up to you to Google some photos. If you're interested in finding out more of the effects of radium on the human body, check out the book The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women by Kate Moore, or the show Radioactive on Amazon Prime starting on July 24th. Additionally, you can find out more about the discovery of radium in an episode on Marie Curie from the podcast Stuff You Missed in History class. Anyway, in the mid-1900s, society began to realize the aging effects of the sun on your skin and the glamour bonnet, which is neither glamorous nor what you would think of a bonnet, came into popularity. This wasn't the typical hat you might wear when going to the beach. Instead, it was a helmet-like device. The atmospheric pressure, at least they advertised it that way, around a person's head, and it was supposed to stimulate blood circulation to help de-age, anti-age. I'll post a picture of it on our Instagram page. The late 1900s brought on products that claimed to increase collagen in your face and the start of the cosmetic use of alpha-hydroxy acids, or AHAs, which have since been demonstrated as helping to prevent signs of premature aging. Eventually, with more modern biomedicine, came the FDA-approved use of Brotox for eye conditions in 1989, then in 2002 for more cosmetic procedures, like frown lines. Even today, people are willing to try almost anything to achieve a youthful glow. From facials and chemical peels to plastic surgery, almost anything is possible, when it comes to appearing younger with modern medicine, or at least feeling as though you do. As for me, I'm not sure. I wear sunscreen when I remember, I work out regularly, drink a heckin' ton of water, and eat a pretty healthy diet, so I've got the basics down. But I am curious, what anti-aging products or procedures do you use, if you use any, and what are the benefits to using those? Let me know in today's episode post on Instagram, and I will be sure to share those in our next episode. In any case, I want to thank you guys for listening and sticking around with me. I am so sorry um, about my pronunciation of a few different words. It is still still a little hard, Um, but bear with me, please. Um, And please subscribe to this podcast if you are interested, if you like what you hear, uh, via your favorite podcast listening platform. If you're having a good time, let me know what you'd like to hear more about and follow us on Instagram at History of Wellness. And as always, have a great day today and stay well.